The following views presented in this hour do not reflect the views of KDVS, KDVS sponsors, or the University of California. Welcome to No Police Radio. This is episode five. Uh, you're listening here on KDVS 90.3 FM, live from Davis, California. You can hear us every other week discussing all things abolition, from tuition to the prison industrial complex, everything that has to go to make way for a free university. We'll feature conversations with guest organizers, abolitionist scholars, and people who have taken part in the university's radical history, all with an eye towards how we get free. And we'll get right into the music and then get started with our content today. I'm a 
the one I never knocked Every job they offer used to kick you off the dock Career opportunity, the one and never Okay, welcome to No Police Radio, episode number five. This is DJ Abby. And we are broadcasting on KDVS 90.3. That was Career Opportunities by The Clash. Um, so this week, we have uh, a couple of super exciting things. Uh, we will have a, a special guest, uh, Mia Dawson of the Graduate Group in Geography, who is going to talk to us about her work and about how abolition geography works in relation to both Davis and Sacramento, and to the world more broadly. Um, but before we get to that, I would love to introduce our my my co-host this week, DJ Juniper. Juniper, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I am also very excited to be here. This is my first time co-hosting. Um, yeah, I'm going by DJ Juniper. I am a student here at UC Davis studying sustainable agriculture. And uh, I got into abolition work uh, a couple years ago. Actually, I think I like to say what like sort of planted the seed was reading a book by, oh man, I don't think I can remember her name. Um, it's, it's, I'm blanking on the name, but it was a book um, that sort of outlined how the prison industrial complex works um, and how it disproportionately affects black people. Um, and that really made me angry, and so I started um, getting involved in more protests, and then the 2020 uprisings happened, and I think that's sort of uh, what pushed me uh, farther into abolitionist work. So that's sort of how I got into it, and I'm really excited to be here. I'm very excited to talk with Mia about her work. I, I did some reading, a little homework before, uh, and it was, it was fascinating, so I'm, I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, absolutely. That that 2020 moment was, uh, I think, radicalizing for, for so many people. So um, excellent. Uh, we're going to take one more musical break, and then we will introduce Mia Dawson. Oh, 
slap them up and shake them up and then you know Set them up to flow and bait them with the dough You can do it funk or do it disco on the turf debating how to get it percolating. You working, you while we happy just to work a day. But I'ma slap them till my blood starts circulating. Do your checks have elasticity? Did they cut off your electricity? Did you scream and yell explicitly? Force the boss into complicity. I'm a white chalk sizzle, but I push a pencil. Rolling dope fiend rentals to your residential. Broke as fuck eating lentils with no utensils. Finna teach pimp class with a whole credential. Pet cops and fills of cola. Murder babies with their molars on the areola. Control the Pope, Dalai Lama, holy rollers, and the Ayatollah. Bump this rolling in your bucket or your new Corolla. Well, you might catch me on the scenic route with my penis out. Yelling twice for the executives with the meanest mouth. Wanna know what this demeanor's about? Said they try to clean us out. Greenish clouds, shut them down. I ain't never seen a drought. In the field, but they ain't calling you back. And for the record, I ain't called it a guy. But tuck this in the small of your back. Waiting the bathroom stall till the tap. Get ready to bra. Houston, get ready to bra. Houston, get ready to bra. Yeah. 
get ready to brawl. London, are you ready to brawl? at KDVS Davis. That last song was Five Million Ways to Kill a CEO. Great title. So we're joined today by Mia Dawson. Mia Carissa Dawson is a community organizer and scholar based in Sacramento. She is a PhD candidate in the geography graduate group at the University of California, Davis, with a designated emphasis in African American studies. Her scholarly work focuses on urban human geography and black social movements, specifically on the contemporary movement for abolition in Sacramento. Mia also works with the UC Davis Violence Prevention Research Program, collaborating on the development of community-based violence interruption programs and alternatives to first response systems. As a community organizer, she has led and participated in initiatives against police terror and incarceration in her city with groups including Black Lives Matter, and Decarcerate Sacramento. She is a coordinating committee member and research partner with Decarcerate Sacramento. Mia, welcome so much to No Police Radio. We are so excited to have you. Yes, I'm so happy to be here. So I'm wondering if, uh, as a a kind of opener, if you could just sort of give our listeners a sense of, you know, for, for folks who haven't studied, say, geography since uh, middle school or even high school, um, what what it is that geography sort of brings to the table in terms of abolition? How do those two things sort of connect in your work and in, in broader work in the field? Yes. Um, so geography is a very huge field. Um, it can mean all kinds of different things. Um, but just to kind of break down where I situate myself and how it relates to abolition. Um, so I'm a human geographer. Um, um, and human geographers tend to focus on social systems um, more so than physical and natural systems, although ev- we are interested in how those things interact. Um, but I'm also um, an urban human geographer, so I focus on cities, and my focus right now is in Sacramento. Um, and I've been active in the movement for abolition in Sacramento um, since, I want to say, like, 2016. Um, so my uh, my scholarship and like my, my work as an organizer have kind of evolved together. Um, and informed each other. So I guess to sum it up, I think that geography allows us to think through the ways that um, capitalism, racial capitalism, um, organized city space, what, how the power dynamics are maintained and how they're made um, material. Yeah, that's really incredible. I, um, I didn't get into geography for a while, but I, I really admire it. I think the focus on like what is actually physically impacting people is amazing. And you get into a lot of different things in an article you wrote um, called The King's Ain't Playing No One Tonight, Desanctifying Property as an Abolitionist Practice in Sacramento. And I was I mentioned earlier that I was reading that, and I, I really loved it a lot. Um, and I think that uh, sort of segues into the next question, which is 
what can the practice of radical geography tell us about social movements and how they sort of move? Yeah, so there's two main different threads um, that I will touch on, um, especially like in terms of what, what I um, kind of write about in the article. Um, so the first um, is looking at um, protests, looking at large protests, um, and seeing how they navigate urban space, what their targets are. Um, and then the second is looking at um, everyday practices of collectivity. Mm. Um, so the spaces that are appropriated, um, not just for these bigger protests that might happen once every few months or once a year, but rather for the everyday like sustenance of life and community taking care of each other. Um, so yeah, I try to connect those two things and make sure that we don't um, overly focus on um, social movements being defined by the bigger and more visible actions that get covered in like the, the news more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that because it, it sort of connects both the, the sort of high-profile moments of uh, radicalism and engagement with, um, you know, uh, a, a kind of everyday thing, right? Practices that you can do in your everyday life and things that you can engage around um, sort of on a daily level, right? So that it's, it's beyond just the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of version of politics goes beyond, say, voting, right? Politics is something that you engage in every day. Um, so you, you write a lot about how uh, property tends to structure space, right? And it's uh, a, a structuring that necessitates policing, right? So can you uh, give us a, a sort of deeper sense of that and, and maybe an example, either, either local or otherwise, of how uh, property, space, and policing kind of work together? Yes, yes, I can. Um, so I guess a couple of the basics that I would say just at first um, is that property relies on exclusion and discipline, um, and policing is the means by which both of those can happen. Um, and to just, I guess, historicize um, what property really means in the uh, United States settler colonial context, um, property was introduced as a relationship to space um, by colonists, and it was a, it's not like a physical thing, right? It's, it's something that they imposed um, that it was only their um, faculty. It was a it was a Euro American faculty to be able to um, own property. Um, so, yeah, property has violence um, that is inherent to it, um, and it yeah relies on exclusion and um, relies on force. Um, and so, in that way, the police and property are um, intimately connected. Um, and one of one of the most important ways that we can think of the role of police is um, through thinking about the role of uh, police in maintaining property relationships. Yeah, so um, one of the things that you write about, um, and and this is something that seems to connect both on a, a sort of uh, local level in our current space, but then also the way that that space has been sort of historically shaped, right? So one of the uh, the events that you go into in your article that is is super fascinating uh, is the way in which a, what started as a sort of protest march uh, took over the Interstate 5 freeway in Sacramento uh, and then migrated to the, the space around the Golden One Arena, which uh, you know gives, gives your article that, that great title that, that DJ Juniper read just a second ago. Um, so can you go through the history of that space in particular uh, in, in downtown Sacramento, the space that the freeway sits on and then, and then the space of the arena as well? Yeah. 
Yes, so that is actually, it was, it was really fascinating to write that article and to learn more about the history of that space um, because I think um, a lot of things that felt very real in terms of the arena as like an architecture of power and like representative of white power um, actually have like a really um, material historical basis. Um, so the, the I-5 freeway was built um, in the 1950s during a period of urban renewal um, and so urban renewal is definitely a euphemism. Um, it essentially meant clearing um, and destroying black and brown neighborhoods um, in order to build freeways. Um, so there was a neighborhood called the West End that was integrated. Um, it was largely black and Japanese people who had um, a thriving economy, like more self-sufficient economy um, that the, the city um, destroyed in order to build the highway. Um, and those people who lived there were um, displaced to uh, neighborhoods and outlying areas of Sacramento, um, including Oak Park, which I believe we're going to talk about um, in a bit, and including Meadowview, which is where um, Stefan Clark, the the young person who whose death sparked the protest, lived. So there's a lot of interconnections there. But um, so the freeway was built through this um, this integrated neighborhood, and then um, the arena was built really close by in the footprint of where that neighborhood was. And it also um, was subsidized by the city and um, sparked a huge amount of gentrification once it was built. So it's it's pretty it's pretty layered. Yeah, no, it's a um, it's a really interesting history, especially with the Golden One Arena too, because I remember when it was being built, there was a lot of backlash from even just like regular people about like all the money that was going into it um, and a lot of the displacement that was happening and a lack of focus on like public infrastructure and things like that. So it's, mm -hmm. it's very fascinating to, um, to know the history of that. And then uh, also when you contextualize it with how we're like showing up in those spaces and desanctifying it, as you say, um, sort of leads into the next question, which is, uh, what do you see like the role of disruption of these spaces or, of property in within social movements. Oh, I think it's I think it's critical um, for a lot of reasons. I guess one of them being that it does um, gain so much visibility. Mm. It sparks discussion, right? Um, it kind of forces people to reckon with um, the the way that our cities are um, our spaces are structured um, and how how racism is built in, right, to the to the um, built environment, and also um, how how we can demand access to space, right? We have the agency mm -hmm. to relate to space in different ways, um, so I think that's that's really important. And then um, also, I guess it kind of allows us to to learn different ways of relating to one another. I think um, in protest there's this like exciting element of um, taking over spaces, but there's also like danger, right? Because mm. the police are there and it's yeah. um, they're militarized. So people take care of each other, people look out for each other. Um, and it kind of, it allows us to think about different ways of relating to each other and relating to space. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a whole like issue too with people that are so vehemently against like property destruction. Um, I remember during the, the 2020 uprisings, I had so many heated discussions with people that like 
just could not wrap their heads around like yeah they they just for some reason love the idea of just having the order of property like not destroyed or whatever um those and people test my patience i do yeah, my best, I'm sorry. I, do my best. <laughs> <laughs> I totally feel that um i think we're gonna get into a little bit of music for a second here uh, and then we've got more questions for you sweet
You've heard about the opiate crisis. Opiates are powerful, pain-reducing medications prescribed by doctors, but they can also be very dangerous. In fact, most overdose deaths involve opiates. So what can you do? A lot. Trouble with opiates often start at home with unused medications in your cabinets or drawers. Opiates can be in pill bottles, syrups, or even prescription patches. Whatever they look like, dispose of unused opiate medications safely before they hurt your family. Find out how to remove the risk at fda.gov slash drug disposal. Graduate students are more than just students. They teach classes, grade papers, do research, and much, much more. The labor of grad students runs the UC. Recently, grad students at UC Santa Cruz have gone on strike to demand a cost of living adjustment, also known as a COLA, so that they can afford to live where they teach and do research. The COLA movement at Davis grew out of solidarity with Santa Cruz, and we are now asking for a cost of living adjustment for all grad students in order to keep up with rising Davis rental prices. We demand a COLA for all, guaranteed summer funding for TAs, and affordable grad housing on campus instead of luxury apartments. For the COLA movement, the work of opposing the UC's exploitative financial structure is a step towards a much broader project of building community, building coalition, building networks of care and support, and building a better world for those disempowered by the university industrial complex. Follow UCD for COLA on Instagram and Twitter for more info on how to join the fight. Welcome back to No Police Radio on KDVS 90.3. I'm DJ Abby, and once again, we are here with Mia Dawson. Uh, before the break, we heard Worker's Song by the Dropkick Murphys. So, Mia, um, we were talking just before the break uh, kind of about the role of, of disruption in relation to social movements and how uh, disruptions kind of allow us to to rework space and the, the sort of usual uh, sort of spatial and social relations um, that, that regulate that. I wanna ask uh, a little bit more about that, right? Uh, as you might know, um, as part of the strike, there's been uh, a blockade at, at Russell and Howard uh, for the better part of the strike. And that's, that's space that's been held by a kind of uh, courageous band of folks, mostly undergrads, in in sympathy with the strike, and it's you know um, kind of resulted in a, an extensive disruption to the the normal everyday sort of action uh, and and flow of of traffic around campus. Um, so, how is it that uh, space and and the disruption of space work in relation to social movement? And can you can you give us a sense of that? Um, either in your experience or uh, in, in relation to geography more broadly? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, well, first of all, shout, shouts out to everyone who's, who's out there holding the line. Um, it's, it's hard work, it's emotionally taxing um, to be on a picket line. Um, so just shouts out and gratitude to everyone who's doing that. Um, so that, that's that, um, and then to answer your question, um, disruptions are critically important. Pe making people uncomfortable is a good thing. People should be uncomfortable. Um, if a protest isn't making anyone uncomfortable, it's probably not a protest. Um, and I think the discomfort is the point, right? And getting people to think differently, getting people to think about how their their day-to-day -day life might actually be either contributing to or upholding or enabled by 
um, violent, oppressive system. Um, that is uncomfortable for people to think about if they haven't had to think about it before. But what's more uncomfortable is grad students living in their car. What's more uncomfortable is grad students deciding which meal they're going to eat. So it's, it's crucial for people to be uncomfortable. And if your reaction to students demanding better living conditions is anger or, or um, I guess, condescension, um, I think you need to ask yourself, what would happen if you actually talked to people, if you took the time to talk to people on the picket line? Because it's not just, it's, they're not just an inconvenience. They're, they're human beings who have stories um, and could probably teach you something. So that's what I'll say specific to the strike that's going on now. Um, again, so much love and shout outs to everyone who's putting in their work. Um, more broadly, I guess I will just say that um, making people angry, I, I just have to emphasize, like making people angry isn't a bad thing. Um, you know, if you're not angry about the system that we live in, then I don't really know what you're looking at or reading. <laughs> um, uh, because, yeah, this the system of racial capitalism is infuriating and um, violent, so everyone should be moving out of a space of anger. Um, not that anger should be the only emotion. There's joy, too. There's like beauty and joy in taking care of one another and doing the work. Um, but anger is also an important driving factor. And so people need to question what's, what's dr driving their anger and where it's coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think like the visceral response that people have to like just sometimes minor inconveniences is really upsetting. Um, I'm also a huge fan of the phrase, uh, scratch a liberal and a fascist bleeds. I think it's very applicable to sort of uh, how people can respond to what they perceive as uh, sort of immoral violence, which is that it's causing them disruptions and oh, you're not like, you're not being angry in the way that you're supposed to um, sort of thing. And I had a, Oh, yeah, no, go for it. Oh, I, I think just to add really quick in terms of people taking these disruptions as a personal attack. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that I also wrote about in the King's article. Um, people take, uh, t people will take disruptions very personally. Yeah. Um, and specifically that disruption of the King's arena. It's fascinating how there can be hundreds of people around you experience the same exact thing. And yet you're taking this as like a personal attack. Um, so something that that I think gets at a bit um, is the relationship between whiteness and property um, and how these things, whiteness and property um, kind of make and remake one another. Um, and so when people disrupt or transgress property relationships, um, it's often taken as a threat to, to white whiteness and white identity itself. Um, so people do have these really visceral reactions and feeling like they themselves are being violated. Um, so that's something we see a lot. Yeah, no, that's super real. Um, so the other, the other sort of thing I wanted to get into and ask you about uh, was sort of your involvement uh, with the community-based violence prevention programs. Um, so are, is that something that you're uh, sort of working on forming or is it kind of formed already and you're doing sort of work already? And, and sort of how does that look like? 
Yeah, um, so that's actually not, that, that project isn't based in Sacramento, so let me okay. just give you some background. Um, so there's a research program called the UC Davis Violence Prevention Research Program. Mm -hmm. um, it's housed in the School of Public Health. Um, and it's not, not a ton of people know about it. It's kind of like in a nondescript building um, for various reasons. But um, yeah, so the, the research team that I work with has been interviewing people who have run these community-based violence intervention programs in cities across the U.S. Um, so it's it's a project that spans different cities and we've been um, kind of trying to like learn from and um, I guess synthesize and communicate some of the lessons that people have in the field have been learning. Um, so these are organizations, um, they're outreach based, meaning that they um, generally involve one-on-one um, -on -one relationships with um, between outreach workers and individuals who mm -hmm. um, generally are both vulnerable to violence and have, have caused harm. Mm -hmm. um, usually th those, those two things apply to the same people. Right. Um, and so we've been synthesizing um, that experience and expertise um, from that field. It's, a, it's actually a field that's gotten a lot of um, federal money recently. Oh, cool. um, and with that always comes a lot of uh, I'm not sure how to put it. Um, just a lot of different organizations maybe claiming that they do something that maybe mm -hmm. they don't know right. how to do. Yeah, um, so yeah, we're, we, we've tried to like synthesize knowledge and put out recommendations um, for people who are wanting to invest or start these programs. Cool. And it, is that sort of like connecting people to resources where they're like regionally based? Is that how that's sort of working, or I'm I'm sort of trying to um, figure out like what aspects of maybe like transformative justice play into it, if at all, or like that sort of thing. Oh yeah, um, so these are they, they these are based in in various cities, um, but they so in their in their local efforts, um, I think they to differing degrees. I think they are involved in what we would think of as transformative mm -hmm. justice. Um, so I guess one of the important things to think through um, is redefining what we think about justice or what we think of as justice, yeah. um, and that's definitely part of the work of transformative justice. But what um, these programs are up against is a system that's based in punishing people mm -hmm. um, for all kinds of things, right? People are punished for all kinds of things, inc just including causing harm against other people, but. Um, the the criminal justice system is really um, kind of more accurately described as the criminal punishment system. Yeah. Um, so trying to think of what justice actually looks like in terms of preventing harm um, and treating people as human beings um, because punishment isn't effective and it's not actually what um, many people who have been harmed actually want. Mm -hmm. um, so transformative justice kind of asks us to rethink that and also asks us to take seriously what people are actually looking for, like what accountability looks like and what healing looks like. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the other things that I'd like to bring in is just the, the sort of role of, of mutual aid in all of this and um, how occasionally direct action, but uh, also just sort of on an ongoing basis, the role that mutual aid can play in sort of forging and uh, materializing alternative social structures, right, for people to follow. Um, you know, sh shout out again to the 
the folks on the picket line, uh, one of the other things that happened this past week was uh, both at Davis and at, at other campuses uh, was a, a dining hall liberation, right? Where the, you know, the sort of the name of the game was uh, free food for the people uh, for some space of time, right? Um, and so I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about um, abolishing and, and sort of uh, a radical approach to the the sort of um, larger social structure, but then also the role that, that mutual aid and, and more direct action plays in, in that way. Yeah, so mutual aid is crucial. I think that mutual aid is kind of like the basic unit of a lot of social movements, right? Is just recognizing like <clears throat> we can provide for each other. Um, we can take care of each other. We're powerful um, when, we, when we act together. Um, so mutual aid is crucial. Um, and I think in terms of thinking about the everyday practices of social movements um, and kind of focusing on that, as, as I said, like kind of like trying to bring the way we think about social movements down to earth a bit, mutual aid is, is absolutely crucial. Um, so I guess, well, with, okay, so with the, with the free dining hall, with the liberated dining hall, um, I absolutely love everything about that. Um, it really makes you think about how arbitrary it is, you know, that we have to like go in and swipe these cards um, to access nutrients. <laughs> it's just kind of when you when when you are able to experience an alternative where it's just people serving food and eating, um, that that can be the first step towards um, kind of opening up people's minds um, and thinking about thinking about. Um, kind of like what's wrong with capitalism, even if someone hasn't really thought about it before. So I think that that kind of action is really, really powerful and important. Absolutely. I mean, if 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 needs are universal, say food, say housing, uh, you know, healthcare, et cetera, it's amazing that these things are so differentially regulated and policed, right? The way that, that access to these things is... is uh, you know, uh, so closely stipulated based on means, based on race, uh, you know, based on so many different factors that seem to have nothing to do with the, with the need itself. So um, I think we're going to take one more musical break. And uh, when we come back, we're hoping to get into some of the more uh, specific issues about Sacramento as a space, what makes Sacramento such an interesting place uh, for a scholar like you to do the, the critical geographic work that you do.
No name for people to call small or colonize optimism. No name for inmate registries that they put me in prison. I sold the answers in linen. Phantom under the thread. Ten I'm riding in cities where niggas scared of the feds. There's a ghost on my bike. City laid with a bullet. He wrote the scriptures for living and all the ways that he couldn't. Gave up the profit for pennies. No taste in mystery. Put in with labels. Asked me to sign. So my name don't exist. So many names don't exist. But in the Englewood. And the trauma came with the rent. Only worldly possession I have is life. Only room that I died in was 25. What's an eye for an eye when niggas won't love you back? And medicines over tax, no name look like you. No name for private corporations to send emails to. Cause when we walk into heaven, nobody's name gonna exist. Cause I was moving for joy, nakedness, radiance. Common sense, baby. All it takes to keep your family healthy this flu season. <coughs> the California Association for Nurse Practitioners says simple steps like frequently washing hands, getting plenty of rest, and reducing stress can help ward off the flu. Simple steps for a healthy America. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to KBBS Davis. That last song was called No Name by No Name, Yah, and Adam Ness. Absolutely love No Name. Probably one of my favorite rappers. So to kick things off again, uh, I'm going to just sort of ask a question to situate the conversation. Um, why is Sacramento an important space for abolitionist work? Yeah, so... I guess the two, the bullet points are that the problems are very extreme and that the organizing work um, is incredible and there's like a ton of really amazing organizations who are doing the work. Um, so to go a bit more into the first one, 
um, Sacramento is really emblematic of the the problems that abolition is up against. Um, the the racial geography of the city is is kind of like a quintessential U.S. city um, in terms of being shaped by these processes of um, redlining, um, urban renewal, um, which I mentioned earlier, um, and toxic loans, and now gentrification. Um, there's a giant county jail that's just blocks away from state offices that um, houses 3,000 people per night um, in downtown Sacramento. So that's like a very visible site of struggle. Um, and Sacramento, the, the police are incredibly lethal. Um, they kill multiple people every year. Um, and per capita, Sacramento is, uh, the police are more lethal than um, other big cities that we would think of, at, uh, like Oakland or um, San Francisco or Los Angeles. Um, and another, I guess, another important thing about Sacramento in terms of um, the work of abolition is that we're in a county that's conservative. Um, so Sacramento County is um, very, very, um, very conservative. There, it's influence. The the sheriff's department, especially, um, has a kind of like distinct far right influence, um, and they worked with ICE. So we see all these intersecting problems. Um, and come together in Sacramento. Um, and then, yeah, there's there's just like a wealth of organizations and really Im important and powerful organizing happening in the city as well. Yeah, one of the things that you write really nicely about it is that it's the, you know, it's it's the state capital for the, the Golden Gulag, right? Um, it's, it's, and, you know, as we so often hear, part of California's sort of identity is that it, it leads the nation on certain things and it seems like um you know in the what you've laid out for us uh in the article and here is that you know sacramento sort of leads california in uh a certain kind of violent policing right that that definitely runs counter to you know uh i think most most sort of folks image of quote-unquote liberal california right um so one of the uh our our, our guest last uh, last episode, um, Devarian Baldwin uh, works a lot on the way that universities uh, shape, reshape space. And one of the things, uh, one of the sort of footprints or the places that, that UC Davis itself is, is reworking Sacramento is the Aggie Square Project, right? Which is this uh, space downtown, uh, in downtown Sacramento, uh, that the university is currently trying to or is you know is in the process of of sort of rebuilding it right it's one of these urban renewal projects that uh seeks to to you know use the kind of uh halo of the university um to, to kind of force through a certain kind of commercial basically commercial development into into a specific space right um so i guess i would be curious to hear so much of what we hear about things like aggie square like the Golden One Arena, is that these are a real sort of promise and opportunity for the, the local neighborhoods that get bulldozed to put them in. Um, and I, I guess I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about um, how those things are, are form more of a, a sort of problem for those neighborhoods and, and the kind of ways that they rework space uh, to privilege some and disadvantage others. Yeah, these projects can really be a nightmare for the communities um, that they're built in. Um, Aggie Square is forecasted to displace and price out people in Oak Park um, in, a, in a neighborhood that's already suffering from gentrification. Um, and 
last I heard, um, the university was only offering kind of like very surface level, um, insufficient um, concessions. Um, there's really not much that they, I mean, yeah, it's 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 going to be um, really destructive. And I, with with gentrification, I think it's always important to focus on um, are people able to stay in their homes? Are people able to afford their homes? Because it can get into like a whole discussion about culture and um, who owns businesses and this and that. But really, if people are getting displaced from their homes, if people of color have to leave, that's that's kind of the f the, f the fundamental um, dynamic that we can think of with gentrification. Um, so it's not about um, you know ha having black-owned businesses. It's not about having like these surface-level fixes. Um, it's really about affordable housing. Um, and housing is there's a the the housing crisis is very very distinct and real and devastating in Sacramento. Um, so any development project that's not um, actually offering affordable housing is harmful. Um, and I, I will also add that affordable housing is pretty much inaccessible in Sacramento. So I think the number that they were talking about with Aggie Square was adding like 400 units or something, which is not meaningful. Um, people are on years long waiting lists for affordable housing. Um, I've heard organizers say that people don't live long enough to actually get affordable housing um so that is that's a huge um transformative shift that we would need to see um in order to actually um combat gentrification and keep people in their homes right because thousands of people are living outside yeah absolutely it's it's really really sad to see i've been in oak park my whole life um and there's been like there's been lots of changes um and one of which being like how policing works. Like I've noticed, um, like my mom would, my mom used to, this is like kind of not great, but my mom would um, call the cops because uh, there would be like gunfights in the park um, and they would just like laugh at her, um, which is kind of funny in retrospect and that's kind of great. But um, but now, you know, there's, there's more, um, there's more white people in the neighborhood and they're calling the cops on what they perceive to be as like criminal behavior, but it's absolutely not, it's, you know? Um, and we know that like black people are just, just for existing are, are criminalized. Um, and I kind of, uh, on the, on the topic of gentrification in Oak Park, uh, in your essay uh, that I mentioned earlier, you wrote about the impossibility of black ownership in space which I found really interesting. Um, and so could you maybe get into that and how that is related to gentrification? Yeah, yes. Um, so I guess to just, um, to just kind of reiterate something I said earlier um, is that it's important for us to think of property um, not as being um, like material or permanent. It's um, instead it's something that's that only exists to the extent that laws, policies, and law enforcement uphold it, right? So if we think about um, black homeownership as having promise um, in terms of, you know, like progress for um, black people, it ends up really always being undermined. Um, you know, houses lose value just by virtue of black people <laughs> living in the neighborhood. Um, and there are some very dramatic and um, very literal ways that 
having a home while black does not offer you the protections that you might think. Um, we can think about uh, the role of SWAT teams in killing people frequently, um, including Breonna Taylor. Um, you know, the, if the police don't decide that you don't have a right to space, then you don't have a right to space, <laughs> um, yeah. on that on their terms at least. So, yeah, so people's homes are invaded. Um, with uh, Stefan Clark, who was um, killed in 2018 by um, Sac Sheriff and Sac City Police, um, he was outside his own home. Um, when he was killed, he was hunted down by a helicopter. Mm. Um, so we can think of, when, when you think of that, that, that's kind of unthinkable if you think of like a residential white neighborhood that that kind of thing would happen. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that's a good illustration of like the limitations of um, property ownership without, if it, without being tied up with whiteness. Um, it can be a completely different thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think, um, and 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 to be fair, this is a question that I, that I that I often ask um, guests on some level or another. Um, but in to the extent that your your work so powerfully demonstrates that uh, racial capitalism, property, uh, and the sort of control of space are are all so tightly connected, uh, and the importance of uh, resisting, disrupting, uh, and you know, sort of uh, contesting property as a kind of social relation. Um, where do you feel like we we start to make those changes? I mean, I I, I think you've talked about um, uh, a lot of them so far, but I I guess I'd just be curious for you know for sort of young radical folks out there who who see the injustice that you point out or see the the sort of things that your work so nicely illustrates um where do you get started right and and a lot of what you've written about talks about the um the sort of role of affect in in both organizing and in and in protest um and so uh what what do you think are the you know what words of advice would you have for for folks who are doing this work and and for folks that want to get started doing it yeah well taking over a dining hall and giving people free food is a great start yeah. um it's so much applause and kudos for that again um yeah so just i would say in terms so right so i think your question kind of fundamentally is asking like how do we think of abolition as a creative process right like where do we start in terms of building what we what we want and what we need and deserve rather than um kind of identifying what we need to tear down um I think that it does really come down to mutual aid. Um, it comes down to collectivity and self-determination, right? So deciding to take um, our lives into our own hands and take care of each other, um, it it is it, it can be like kind of reassuringly self uh, or uh, straightforward to think of it that way, right? It's essentially just like connecting with people, rejecting the ways that we are isolated from each other. Um, very strategically um, under like a racial capitalist wage-centered system. Um, it requires us to connect with each other, um, see what see what the needs are, and then see how we can be creative in taking, stealing, making what, what we need. Um, and then from there, all kinds of other things become possible, right? Um, by meeting one need, um, by, by creating one initiative, um, you're gonna connect with other people who are working on something that's um, kind of synergistic with you. 
Um, and so that's how movements are made, right? Um, but yeah, th I would say find out what's already happening. Find, find out, based on what you care about, find out what people are already doing. Um, join them, and if, if, if it doesn't exist, start it. Um, find other people who are enthusiastic. Um, and yeah, everyone should feel empowered to, to, to be a part of social movements. Um, and it really, it doesn't require you like joining something or signing in blood. It just re requires you finding people who care about something similar to what you care about um, and working to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are very beautiful words of wisdom. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I think we're sort of wrapping up the interview here. Um, but are there any sort of current projects or, or research that you're doing that you'd like to talk about real quick? Um, yeah, so I wanted to mention um, there's a, a really important struggle going on um, in Sacra Sacramento right now to um, stop an expansion of the main jail. So that's the county jail that I mentioned earlier was is right in downtown Sacramento. Um, it has terrible conditions. It's actually it's under a lawsuit right now um, for its really terrible, disgusting, inhumane, terrifying conditions. Um, and the the county has tried to throw more money at this terrifying institution um, and tried to expand it multiple times. And or community organizations have been able to stop them from doing so, but they keep bringing back different proposals mm. to do so. Um, so there's one um, coming up on December 7th. It's a, a County Board of Supervisors meeting where they're going to be discussing another um, expansion of the main jail, which we absolutely have to halt. Um, and so there's all kinds of things you can do to support. One of them would be um, showing up or joining by phone for that meeting, um, 2 p.m. on December 7th. But um, Leading up to it, there's all kinds of other ways to connect. Um, so Decarcerate is one of the organizations that's really um, making moves on this. Um, and so you can you can just look up Decarcerate Sacramento. Um, it's spelled the same as Incarcerate, but just with the D-E. Um, they're on Instagram. I think it, uh, Instagram is Decarcerate underscore Sacramento. And then Twitter is Decarcerate Sac, one word. Um, so that's, that's one initiative that's like super urgent right now oh and then what was it like what i'm working on too mm -hmm. um okay yeah so and then for me i can never keep track of what i'm actually doing i'm working on a few things um but um yeah i i would love for you guys to read the article that we talked about and i always like really welcome hearing back i could find email addresses like on there but um in terms of keeping up with anything else I'm working on, some other publications I'm working on. Um, you can also find me on Twitter, um, and I post I post everything on there. Um, so my Twitter is um, Mia Carissa. Um, that's M-I-A-K-A-R-I-S-A. -A -A. Um, and yeah, you can keep up with me on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Mia. I think we're going to get into some music here. Uh, but it's been, it's really been a pleasure, uh, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. Thank you. Yo, this all came about one time when I was I was I was.
was on a plane back, going back to Los Angeles, coming from somewhere else. And I sat next to this lady, and she was telling me some things, you know. I don't remember it verbatim, but I do remember some of the things she said. And it was like this. She said, Life as we know it is about to change. I smell it within the air. The weather is getting strange. Drugged up, sedated, and numb from the pain. The sickness in America has spread to her brain. She is no longer fit to make good decisions. She is completely blind and void of any vision. She parties hard and she keeps her conscious mind in prison. Therefore, she's headed for the ultimate collision. She can no longer hide the scars on her face. The innocence now gone is hard to replace. She has no shame, no remorse, or any grace. She embraces the devil and she hates over race. Miss America, the beautiful, the free. Falling within the cracks, I wish that you can see. She buried a misery within society. It's obvious you have no regard for me. That's why you caught up in the belly of America. Lost in the stomach of America. Broken down in the bowels of America. Sinking in the garbage of America. Stuck in the brain of America. Suffering in the body of America. Lying in the wicked spirit of America. Dying in the old soul of America. Miss America, you've been a very bad girl. You nearly disgraced humanity in the eyes of the world. Vanity has took you over. You're not deserving. The mirror image of your reflection is quite disturbing. She makes so many promises she couldn't keep. She neglected to mother her young so they don't sleep. They scream out for justice and then they weep. We're not to blame, Miss America. It's what you reap. The audacity of your inventions to rule us all. The tragedy of your intentions to fool us all. You should have gave in to nature and to the laws it's only a matter of time before you fall the things you should have worked out in your first colony took some of your own advice and your psychology you've destroyed all morale and the ecology i'm sorry but i don't accept your apology i'm caught up in the belly of america lost in the stomach of america broken down in the bowels of america sinking in the garbage of america stuck in the brain of america suffering in the body of America, lying in the wicked spirit of America, dying in the old soul of America. Oh, Miss America, so much attractions has yet to take responsibility for her actions. We work around within the system and make adaptions so you can let freedom ring within your faction. How can people still be hungry when there's a surplus? Suffering within your home, you've made them worthless. Damn near police the state and make us nervous, even though some conform and join your service. Your presidency's the biggest joke, but where the laugh? I always smell the gun smoke on your behalf. I think I should send a telegraph to your staff. America, you're down in dirt, you need a bath. So tell your secret agents, don't be paranoid. This wasn't taught by Socrates or Sigmund Freud. This is simply God's work you can't avoid. Every nation ever built has been destroyed. Cause we caught up in the belly of America. Lost in the stomach of America. Broken down in the bowels of America. Sinking in the garbage of America. Stuck in the brain of America. Suffering in the body of America. Trying in the good old spirit of America. Dying in the old soul of America. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
My name is Sufjan Stevens, and you're listening to the beautiful sounds of KDVS in Davis, California. The following views presented in this hour do not reflect the views of KDVS, KDVS sponsors, or the University of California. Bringing you right back to No Police Radio here on KDVS 90.3 FM, live from Davis, California. Thanks for tuning in, and we're going to get right back to the content. But first, we just listened to Miss America with three Ks by Assay Alone off the album Love and Hate. All right, so now we come to the portion of the show uh, that we like to call Bad Cop, Good Project. Uh, a segment that we try and use to foreground both the problem of policing and to illustrate some of the ways that we might find alternatives to it. Um, so DJ Juniper is going to give us our bad cop. Yes, so uh, this week I, I went with a, just a larger bad project of the prison system. Um, there was a an article that I came across titled uh, "Mentally Ill Prisoners in California Are Three Times Likelier to Get Shuffled Around," and it's really really sad um, going through it and and seeing just how terrible the carceral system is to people in general, uh, but especially with people that are facing uh, or that are that are living with symptoms of mental illness. Uh, and I think part of um, Part of the reason I, I chose it was uh, to touch on just how terrible the prison system is and how, uh, especially within the realm of mental health, because there is no, like, biological normal. There's no sort of uh, sanity that's real. It's it's all just a sort of a social construct, right? And, and how we look at crime is also a construct, and people that deviate from those norms, uh, whether it's um, mental illness or at least what's it's called mental illness, um, which is like neurodivergency, um, those are criminalized heavily, uh, and especially when you look at the intersections of people's identities, uh, black people especially that are facing um, just oppression on multiple levels are naturally going to be stressed. They're going to people that are facing oppression and have no resources um, or, or lack of housing or food security, uh, they're often the targets of the carceral system and policing in general. Uh, and so within the prison system, you know, it's already terrible, but what they do with people that are uh, experienced mental health symptoms uh, is even worse because they move them around um, often multiple times a week and I believe a specialist in the in the article uh, pretty much said that disrupting someone's routine who's severely mentally ill adds an extreme amount of additional stress uh, and can even worsen people's um, conditions and so uh, that's you know very terrible project that is the prison system and I think we, uh, we talked a lot about uh, the uh, how terrible prisons are this episode. So 
um, I think I'd like to get into some good projects that's going on. Yes. Um, so th this week we have a, a, a sort of special opportunity um, since Mia Dawson, uh, who, was, who was our guest earlier, uh, has done so much good work in Sacramento in addition to the uh, connected connection with Decarcerate Sac. Um, she agreed to stick around and give us uh, a little bit more of a good project. So, Mia, turning it over to you. What is our good project for this week? Okay, I will shout out um, organizing around um, uh, an encampment um, known as um, Camp Resolution in Sacramento. Um, so the folks who are living there, um, there's been back and forth between the city. They're essentially supposed to, the city was supposed to um, not send cops to clear the encampment and take people's belongings and displace them. Um, and they, they served an eviction notice, I want to say a few weeks ago, I'm not positive how long ago, but um, the community was able to organize um, and prevent that from happening. And I know that there have been um, events happening at Camp Resolution, like open mics and um, different kind of gatherings and community organi um, organization spaces um, at Camp Resolution. So that was an exciting victory um, to have people stay in their, um, their home, what, what is their home at the moment. Um, and yeah, there's a lot going on there. So I will shout that out. Any, any, um, any time that we can keep people from being um, cleared out inhumanely um, and displaced with nowhere to go um, is definitely a victory, even if it's temporary. And it's 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 crazy out there. So um, yeah, shout out to the folks at Camp Resolution. Absolutely. Um, the other sort of good project that I I just want to keep forefront uh, for our audience is, of course, the ongoing strike. Uh, critical sort of um, work being done by folks out on the picket line in a variety of fashions. And so are, if you are inclined at all uh, and, and want some way to get involved, in addition to Decarcerate SAC, in addition to uh, resisting encampment clearments like Camp Resolution, uh, you, can, you can come out to the picket line uh, and support the academic workers that are simply fighting for the means to teach and thrive and survive uh, where they live here in California, where things have become so terribly expensive uh, for folks. So um, I think that brings us to the end of the, the conversation segment. Um, and it kind of brings us to the end of the quarter in some ways. So um, if you're wondering what time and day we will be on for winter quarter, that is to be determined. Um, if you're interested in knowing when it will happen, uh, feel free to check out our Instagram. That's at UCD underscore COC. Uh, and if you have any questions related to abolition or any of the topics that we discussed on air this quarter, you can send them to the Instagram DM or email us at ucdavis.coc at gmail.com. And of course, if you want to find out more about the show, you can always tune in to 90.3 FM or listen on kdbs.org. I'm DJ Abby saying thanks for your, all of your support uh, for a, a first quarter of the show here on No Police Radio.
las aguas del río Bravo. Y nos quitaron a Texas, Nuevo México, Arizona y Colorado. También voló California y Nevada. Con Utah no se llenaron. El estado de Wyoming también nos lo arrebataron. Yo soy la sangre del indio, soy latino, soy mestizo. Somos de todos colores y de todos los oficios. Y si contamos los siglos, aunque le duela al vecino, somos más americanos que todititos los gringos. Y si no miente la historia, aquí se sentó en la gloria la poderosa nación. We just listened to Somos Más Americanos by one of my mom's favorite bands. And if you are from SoCal and of Hispanic descent, probably your mom's favorite band as well, Los Tigres del Norte. Um, I was supposed to see them like three years ago. It's kind of upsetting that I didn't, but it's all right. Um, but yeah, and it's off their album, Uniendo Fronteras. Um, and yeah, so this is just one of the many songs about the plight of Latin um, of Latinx folks in living in the United States, um, some of them even living in um, land occupied by uh, the American government that used to belong to them, um, especially folks who are native to Mexico um, and all of those um, and all of the regions within um, the recognized border of Mexico. But, you know, as we know, a lot of the um, land in the western United States uh, used to be a part of Mexico as well so um, but yeah what even our borders right but we are gonna have um, we're just gonna be highlighting some um, songs of uh, uh, Latino liberation and just songs uh, about the plight of um, Hispanic folks uh, not only in the US but just around the world and um, a lot of these songs are just about solidarity and, um, you know, anger at the system and all of all of the things that we touch on in the show and all of the things that many of us think about on a daily basis. Um, and yeah, so we're going to continue on with the music and hope you all are having a great evening. It is 724 Pacific Standard Time. You're listening to KDBS 90.3 FM. Ahí viene el hombre gris, ya puesto que pa' pedir, voy a mí que me va a decir, y me muchacho que hay para mí. Ahí viene el hombre gris, ya puesto que pa' pedir, voy a mí que me va a decir, y me 
para mí En su uniforme tú puedes ver Lo malo que puede ser Y el miedo que provoca En vez de proteger Me causa estrés No lo puedo ver Mejor cojo la otra cera para no chocar con él Me pide la cédula Se la doy Me pide la licencia Se la doy Me pide el seguro Se lo doy Pero como quiera Ahí viene el hombre rico, ya puesto que pa' pedir, voy a mí, ¿qué me va a decir? Dime muchacho, ¿qué hay para mí? Ahí viene el hombre rico, ya puesto que pa' pedir, voy a mí, ¿qué me va a decir? Dime muchacho, ¿qué hay para mí?
Nicaragua. Muchas gracias. En la rama de un nopal se quejaba un pajarito. Todos quieren gobernar con cadenas y martillos. Ay sí, ay no, pajarito de mi corazón. Ay sí, ay no, pajarito lleno de dolor. Ale, ay ay ay. Hermanos americanos, levantemos la cabeza y pidamos a los hombres que se cumplan las promesas. Ay sí, ay no, pajarito de mi corazón. Ay sí, ay no, pajarito lleno de dolor. Ay ay ay. Hermanos americanos, nuestra tierra no es tan pobre, pero vienen desde lejos y no dejan sin un cobre. Ay sí, ay no, pajarito de mi corazón. Ay sí, ay no, pajarito lleno de dolor. Ay ay ay. Cuando un pobre pide ayuda, se la niegan al momento. Le cuentan tantas historias que el pobre se va contento. Ay sí, ay no, pajarito de mi corazón. Ay sí, ay no, pajarito lleno de dolor. Ay, ay, ay. Y si hay que pagar impuestos, mandarán primero al pobre, que el rico se está ocupando de echar dinero en un sobre. Ay no, pajarito lleno de dolor. Afírmate, pajarito. Ojalá. La patria pide a sus hijos el respeto y la cordura. Los hijos van a la patria, gobernante de piel dura. Ay sí, ay no, pajarito de mi corazón. Ay sí, ay no, pajarito lleno de dolor. de un nopal, el pajarito no canta, de mirar tanta injusticia se le secó la garganta. Ay sí, ay no, pajarito de mi corazón, ay sí, ay no, pajarito lleno de dolor. Some chose to take refuge in the great caverns and find a new way of life far below the Earth's surface. Plunge into the dark with the Metal Morlocks. Friday nights, starting at 8 p.m. with the Pirate at 10 p.m. and Blasphemer at midnight. Metal that will eat your ears alive. All right, before that final announcement... We listened to a few different songs. Um, the most recent one was Coplas del Pajarito, um, or The Little Bird's Complaint, by Rolando Alarcón. Um, and this is one of the uh, more well-known 
uh, Latin American protest songs, and it's just um, one of the numerous anti-war songs, uh, songs of anti-war sentiments. Um, again, it's not really often that songs explicitly say, uh, you know, we don't want war in our lands, like we don't want uh, U.S. intervention in our governments, etc. Um, but let's see. But yeah, this song is basically just talking about uh, how uh, it is a, you know, Latin America is a very plentiful land and, um, you know, land that benefits the people and people, you know, take care of each other um, and how, um, you know, when there is other intervention or when there's like unrest, um, that sense of community is lost. And um, but yeah, there can I'm sure there are other uh, there are different um What's the word? Different analyses analyses of the song, but um, that's just my little take on it. Uh, before that was Solo Le Pido Adios by Mercedes Sosa off the album Abril in uh, Managua. And at the top of the block, Hombre Gris by Vaquero. Uh, that's V-A-K-E-R-O. Um and I believe it was a single, but I can't really find the specific album it was off of. But um, it just talks about the, this specific song talks about the um, plight of Black Dominicans um, and uh, Black Dominicans living in the Dominican Republic and the colorism that they, um, that they experience there. And uh, I definitely think later in the show, I want to talk about a um, really interesting phenomenon. Um, and I was just, I think I came across, like, I don't know if I saw this on, uh, on TikTok or if I was just like on Twitter or something or where but um, then I found like the original Reddit post on the, not me on Reddit but uh, I found the original Reddit post um, asking can anyone explain why Latinos love Morrissey I understand why an individual would because his lyrics are godlike however why specifically Latinos and not just America thanks um, so I feel like I did like maybe a little deep diving on this, um, but it is just like an interesting question. And like, there are so many different people who will like explain like, oh, it's because they resonate with the lyrics, but like, um, you know, lyrics about not belonging and all of that fun stuff. But um, there was a, a, one of the Reddit answers was actually really interesting and um, really goes into like specific events in the media and specific events in um both Morrissey's development and the development of the Smiths and um, just like rock rockability music in that era and how that kind of just um, influenced why uh, Latino specifically um, ended up really resonating with the Smiths and with Morrissey. So definitely want to read that Reddit answer afterwards um, just for a little, I guess not for fun, but it's for fun and knowledge, right? Like, but for now we're going to continue with the music and um, we're going to end with uh me reading off of that reddit post um and also listening to some morrissey so um keep your socks on because they're going to be off at the end of the show let's just get back into the music
That was a little bit longer song called Cumbia Sobre el Mar by Quantic and Flowering Inferno. Um, I think it was off of a compilation, but I'm not sure the original album it was off of. But um, yeah, I love some... It's not like super, um, it's not like intense cumbia, but really nice, got a really nice flow to it. Um, again, highlighting, um, a lot of Spanish music today. Uh, and yeah, um, I don't know if for those who weren't here before, um, I wanted to read an answer off of this Reddit post, um, answering the question, can anyone explain why Latinos love Morrissey? Um, I think I really wanted to, I think it was just like, I think it was just brought up in conversation with my mom um, when I was playing the Smiths in the car and um, she was just talking about how the Smiths uh, make her really sad for some reason. Um, it's not. And she was just saying how this, you know, the song doesn't even relate to a specific time in her life. Um, just the lyrics make her really sad sometimes. And um, she is a Salvadorian American immigrant. Um, or I guess she's a Salvadorian immigrant. Um, who currently resides in America and um, had to cross uh, multiple borders to get here and um, has had one of the most tumultuous lives that I've ever heard of. And she is my hero and I love her. I love my mom. It was her birthday yesterday, my Sagittarius queen. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think after that, uh, I, you know, probably... Um, I don't know, like the TikTok lords were like listening to me or something. And like, I don't know, Jeff Bezos was probably listening as well. And, you know, not Bezos, wh whoever the guy is that owns Facebook. I don't know. I'm blanking on the name right now. Um, I wonder if it's like, I guess it's not good that I don't know his name. But um, it'll come to me in like two seconds and I'm just going to feel really stupid. But um, yeah, he's probably listening to me as well. But yeah, that's probably why that like targeted Um like TikTok came up or something uh, asking why Latinos love Morrissey and the Smiths. So um, I'm just going to quickly read the answer to that question off of Reddit. And it was posted four years ago. Um, so let's see. But yeah, so answering to that question, uh, this is the answer that was posted. Uh, I can't even tag who or I can't even um, properly credit who wrote it because the account was deleted. So it's just in parentheses deleted. But um Four years ago, they posted this. Hundreds of articles, blogs, and think pieces will tell you that it's Morrissey's crooning and passionate lyrics and the connection to ranchera music, coupled with his yearning for love and acceptance. But that's a whole load of BS. It might have ended up here. It might have ended up there, but that's not how it started. It all began in early 1991 when Morrissey began to cultivate the rockability look, a subculture that mirrored the Hispanic greaser lifestyle of Los Angeles in regards to clothes, hair, and tattoos. This was 100% because... Um, Chaz Smith of Madness took Morrissey to the Camden Workers Social Club while he was recording Kill Uncle. The Camden Workers Social Club exclusively played rockability music, and the people who attended the club wore 50s clothes um, with bouffants and grease-backed um, pomodors. I'm guessing that just refers to their hair. Um, and in parentheses, it says, see the Sing Your Life video. Morrissey was looking for musicians to take out on his Kill Uncle tour, and serendipitously met um, Alain, Gary, and Spencer there. Um, Morrissey hired the three, and later Boz, and a new look and sound was born. Mor the Morrissey-Mexican connection picked up steam around the spring-summer of 91 in Los Angeles with the release of We Hate It When Our Friends Become Successful, 
and pregnant for the last time. It wasn't so much the music as it was the look of Morrissey and his new backing band in the videos. If you look at Gary Day and Spencer in those videos, um, they look like Mexican greasers from the East Los Angeles, from East Los Angeles at the time. To see them walking around the streets in those videos, they look like an actual gang offset, of course, by Morrissey in his gold lame blouses. Um, it all worked somehow. The Latino, uh, the Mexican Latino thing really blew up in late 92 when he played the Hollywood Bowl. I've seen the Smiths four times in Los Angeles and Orange County, and the audiences were your typical white high school and college kids, 80s era goths, and KROQ listeners. I saw Morrissey at least a dozen times during his 91 Kill Uncle tour, and he attracted the same audience. Then I went to both shows at the Hollywood Bowl and noticed something I'd never seen at a Morrissey or Smith show before. Lots of Mexican guys dressed in cuff Levi's, Morrissey t-shirts, motorcycle boots, and hair saturated and pomade along with Mexican girls dressed like the pink ladies from Greece. There weren't a lot of these new fans, but enough for me to notice. It was cool, and it was obvious to see where the influence came from. Of course, the music was a part of it. It wasn't uncommon for you to hear Morrissey songs in between 50s oldies rap, 80s alternative, especially Depeche Mode and The Cure, and hip-hop um, at backyard ditch parties in Los Angeles. But, um, let's see, I lost my place. But the whole most Mexican thing began with the look, and it started um, in East L.A. You can see photos of Morrissey's shirts at ditch parties here, and it's you know the photos are linked. And in a couple of spots in this YouTube clip about said parties, and you know the video was linked. The music was secondary in the very very beginning, um, and in the end, uh, it just brings around to say that um, you know in the end you know it came around that um, you know the music just ended up resonating resonating with. Um, the Latino culture, especially in Los Angeles and um, Southern California, um, you know, just a lot of people who were immigrating from Central America and um, from Central America and Mexico and South America were just, um, you know, experiencing uh, were experiencing racism in those areas um, from, you know, the people who were residing there. And um, yeah, my brain is just really scrambled right now. But that was a really interesting answer, and I hope that was interesting to y'all as well. Um, but yeah, uh, for some reason, it doesn't really explain why my mom finds uh, the Smiths very sad. Um, but I don't know. So yeah, now I'm just wary of when I put that around her because I don't want to trigger anything, but um, I don't want to make her sad at all. But um, yeah, other people don't really feel that same sadness. Uh, I mean, they do feel that sadness, but that sadness in turn um, turns into um, turns into happiness and turns into a sense of community when you all resonate with the same musicians. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and play... How many minutes do we have? Ten more minutes? Um, I'm going to go ahead and play two more songs, and then we're going to end with some more C for tonight. Um, and thank you all for listening. This has been No Police Radio.
All right, that was El Pueblo Unido Jamás Será Vencido um, by Inti, uh, let's see, Inti Ilimani. And uh, as promised, today we're going to end our show, the final um, official No Police Radio broadcast of the programming season. Uh, I'll probably be back um uh, two Mondays from now, um, just with some more music and maybe some more unofficial content. But um, for now, the official No Police Radio podcast, uh, not podcast, but the official No Police Radio program will resume next academic quarter. Um, I believe that's January 6th or 8th, somewhere around there. But we're going to resume around then. Um, but for now, I'll do my best to take over the content for uh, the remaining show um if you don't hear me you're gonna hear a sub and some other awesome programming from arcadvs djs um but let's see so yeah this has been no police radio um again as mentioned if you have uh any desire to um know when our you know when our time slot is going to be next quarter or in 2023 um you can follow us at ucd underscore coc on instagram um i believe the twitter handle is the same um if it's not i think it's just ucdcoc on twitter and um let's see um what else what am i missing um let's see oh yeah and if you have any questions on abolition or any of the topics that we discussed on the show this quarter um any lingering questions any pressing thoughts um you can feel free to email us at ucdavisCoc at gmail.com or shoot us a direct message on Instagram at ucd underscore coc. Um, but yeah, send us your questions. We look forward to returning uh, with our regular programming um, in 2023. And it's crazy that we're saying goodbye already. I mean, next week is finals. Um, but like I mentioned before, we'll all either be back with um, music and or just me talking um, in two Mondays from now or um, you'll have a uh, another lovely KDBS DJ filling in that slot for us. Um, but yeah, so stay, um, I don't know. Thanks for listening. Thank you for all of your support. And we hope you enjoyed our programming. And as promised, we're going to end with a Morrissey song tonight. And this one is titled, The More You Ignore Me, The Closer I Get. Closer I get, you're wasting your time. The more you ignore me, the closer I get, you're wasting your time. I will be in the bar.
You are listening to KDVS Davis 90.3 FM. I am your host, Cuttlefish, here with Zen Harmonic. Today I will be playing you some, uh, a, a little, a little eclectic-y for me, but it'll be...